Good morning. Peace be with you. Great to be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, one of the elders here at Sojourn Midtown, and we're continuing our look at the book of Acts. Now, sometimes there are some people who simply can't see past their own culture. There's people that just can't see past their own culture. I remember uh, there was a time when I was working with a mission agency in Puerto Rico, and uh, we had a particular individual who came to help build houses in this building project in Puerto Rico, and this person could not see past his own culture. I think as far as we could tell, he had never left a particular county in Mississippi. He'd never been outside that. And suddenly here he is in Puerto Rico building houses. And there was one point at which he did not come back from the work site one evening. So we had this uh, time at the work site, which was to head back to the housing area. And he didn't come back from the, from, the, to the work, from the work site. And so we were wondering, oh my goodness, what happened to him? Has, what's, we don't know. We can't get a hold of him on his cell phone. We're trying to find him. And so we're trying to get a hold of him. And finally, that evening, about the time we're ready to call the police, he comes careening in on the white van that he'd been driving. I'm like, where have you been? And he said, I've been in the town of Salida. And we said, there is no town of Salida around here. He said, I know, I couldn't find it on the map. I couldn't find that tiny, but but every sign I went by, it said Salida, 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 Salida. Every time I passed a sign, it said Salida, and I couldn't find Salida on the map. We finally had the mercy to tell him the word is Salida, which means exit in Spanish. And so when we said that to him, we, he, we said these were exit signs. And he said, if they were exit signs, why didn't they say exit on them? I was like, they did, brother. They did. They did. You didn't see it. You just didn't know it at that point. He was a person who could not see past his own culture and spent the night looking for the lost city of Salida. Now, we may not find ourselves looking for a lost city, but the fact is that in every one of our lives, there are areas we struggle to see life from the perspective of somebody else. We just struggle to do that. We see things a certain way, and it's a struggle for us to see how others view the world. Now, the simplest solution to that dilemma is one that many people in our world pursue. And here's the simplest solution. The simplest solution is to surround yourself only with people who believe like you do and think like you do and look at the world like you do. And and then you can even tailor your Facebook and Twitter feeds to make sure that you only hear voices from people there that are like you. You can even make sure you only watch on television the news from people who agree with you and you live your life in a perpetual echo chamber where everybody, everything that they say, everything that you hear is stuff that you already agree with. Here's the problem, though. That is not an option for believers in Jesus Christ. That's not an option for us. Because you see, God has called us to a kingdom. He has called us to commitments in which we are to be about every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We are to be about hanging around with people and doing life with people who are different from us. We are not called to an echo chamber. We are called to a kaleidoscope. Has anybody ever had a kaleidoscope? You take and turn that, it looks like a telescope, and you turn that, and it's all different colors and all different patterns, and God does not call us to an echo chamber. He calls us 
to a kaleidoscope, a kaleidoscope of cultures and colors and languages. And if we miss this, we are worse off than somebody looking for the lost city of Salida. We are missing the beautiful vision that God has for his people. Now, we as a church here, we are on an intentional journey toward deep diversity. And I use those two words very, very intentionally. Diversity, not merely ethnic, though that's certainly part of it, but economic and political and educational and something that is deep. It's not merely something where we cover up the differences between us and cover up the different cultures from which we come. It's not something where we simply learn to coexist with one another. It is something where we live in deep relationships with people who are different from us that challenge us and cause us to see the world differently, to hear the voices of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And we as a church are not there yet. In fact, we are a long ways from that. But I believe in a beautiful future. I believe in a beautiful future where we can see a taste here of a kaleidoscope kingdom of colors and languages and cultures that are brought together in this place for the glory of God. So I want to wrestle with the question today. How will we develop a culture of deep diversity? Here's the bad news. Up front, it's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. It is difficult for us to do this. But here is the good news. We are not the first people to struggle with this. In fact, when we look at the book of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 14 that Paul says it is necessary to endure many difficulties on our way to the kingdom. And what we learn in Acts is that one of those difficulties that they faced, that they endured, was how do we bring together people who are different from one another? You see, for centuries in their context, God had worked primarily with the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. And God's purpose in working with them was to preserve a people through whom he would bring Jesus into the world. And Jesus came and he kept the covenants that God had made with Israel and they had broken. Jesus kept them in our place. He took the punishment for our failures to measure up to God's standard. And he was raised from the dead in his last words to his disciples before he was taken up into the heavens were a call to deep diversity. He said to these descendants of Israel, make disciples from every nation, every people group, every ethnicity, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bringing them together into one community. Now, this plan begins to unfold in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, we have all these people speaking in all different languages from all over the world, but they're still all Jewish people. Chapter 8, we have the Samaritans coming to Christ who are half Jews. Then we have in chapter 10, for the first time, people who are not Jewish at all, people who are Gentiles. That's just a description of anybody who's not a Jew. Most of you are Gentiles. And the first time in chapter 10, Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. And by the time we roll around to chapter 14, we have a church plant in Antioch with Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. And for them and for us, deep diversity is difficult and it is messy. And not everyone was happy with what they saw happening in Antioch. 
So I want you to stand together and we read Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. There's some men came down from Judea, began to teach the brothers. Unless you're circumcised according to the practice prescribed by Moses, you can't be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this issue. And when they'd been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. They arrived in Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done through them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. Let's pray. God, open our minds and hearts that through this text of Scripture, we may hear your words. We love what we hear and that it may transform us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we enjoy seeing people who don't naturally fit together, join a team to do something great. Think about movies we watch, everything from Zootopia and you've got a rabbit and a fox together to the Avengers, Iron Man and Captain America together to Toy Story with a spaceman and a cowboy together. We like to see people who are different brought together on a team. Well, that's what's happening in Antioch. You have people who don't naturally fit together being brought together in this congregation. Because understand, Jews and Gentiles did not play well together in the first century at all. In any way, shape, or form, they did not play well together. Anti-Semitism is not a modern invention. It's something that goes back way into history for a whole variety of reasons. This horrible thing that we see of this prejudice against Jewish people. Remember that the Jews, they were persecuted by the Greeks. They were ridiculed by the Romans. And any respect they received was only because they had a religion that was very ancient. You may wonder, what were the things that frustrated the Romans and the Greeks and all the Gentiles around them? What was it that really bugged them about the Jewish people? Well, part of it was that the Jews refused to recognize the Roman gods. It's a big deal. They didn't believe in the Roman gods, but that was a big deal because the Romans viewed the gods as the way that their empire received favor and to sustain, it sustained their empire. So if somebody stopped worshiping or refused to worship the Roman gods, what that meant practically is you were endangering our nation, our empire. Not only that, they refused to fellowship with Gentiles or eat the same foods, but the most strange thing of all, from the perspective of most of the Gentiles, was that they, refused, they, they circumcised their baby boys. Now, this is a practice that's awkward to talk about, but it's all the way through the Bible, so we're just gonna get over the awkwardness. So I'm gonna put a picture up on the screen. No, I'm just kidding, I'm not really. Uh, we really do try to shoot for PG-13 at Sojourn, but I'm not really going to do that. But the problem is, is that today, people either choose or don't choose this due to this whole variety of cultural and clinical reasons. But back then, 
just about the only people who did this were the Jewish people. And for them, it wasn't just a custom. You see, when God promised Abraham children and to make him into a great nation, God commanded him in Genesis chapter 17 to be circumcised. Now, when this happened, Abraham is not a baby. He is 99. He is going to remember this, okay? So I know it's not recorded in the Bible, but I just have this sneaking suspicion that the first time when God said, you need to do this as a sign of this covenant, Abraham was like, you want me to do what with my what? I just think that's what Abraham said. And he probably said something effective. God, can we not just make a secret handshake and call it even? But God is insistent. This is the way that we're going to do this. And, And the reason for that was that separation of flesh from flesh was seen to be a symbol of the separation of the Israelites, of the descendants of Abraham from all the other nations. And thus it becomes the sign, the seal, the symbol of God's covenant with Israel. Now, what we see in this, when we, when we look at this, when we think through this and understand this, is that this, what happened with Antioch was radical. Because what happened in Antioch is that Jews and Gentiles were mingled together in another church. This was in one church, and this was a gathering that no one in their world could have imagined. So imagine early on Sunday mornings, they gathered together in probably in a courtyard of a wealthy member's home. They didn't have buildings. And you have sitting side by side, doing life together, kosher Jews and pork chop eating Gentiles. They're both together. They're both together. This, this, This barrier in their culture has been overcome. And then came some teachers from Judea. And their response when they saw this was not, wow, this is beautiful. This is the deep diversity Jesus commanded. This has been part of God's plan since time began. Wow, that was not their response. Their response was, you Gentiles, Paul only told you part of the truth. You see, before you can really be saved, there's a little outpatient surgery we need to do as part of new members class. Talk about making membership meaningful. Imagine all these Gentiles, they're like, well, there's some fine print Paul didn't tell us about. And he forgot to mention that. And so this church is dividing. You have on the one hand, you have Barnabas and Paul who are saying, Jesus kept all the covenants in your place. Trust in him and you're made right with God. But on the other hand, we have these teachers from Judea who think they're cut above everybody else, so to speak. And they're saying, if you don't do this, your salvation starts post-surgery. And in between, you got a bunch of new Christians, and the men are guarding their loincloths very, very carefully. So this was just not about circumcision, though. This was about the gospel. This was about the gospel. Because you see, if they did this, if they gave in to this, it wasn't just about one little procedure. They were committing to keep 613 laws that are in the Old Testament. They're committing to keep all of it. They're committing themselves to keep all of it. And the fact is that that would be a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by which God makes us right with himself, not because of anything we have done or will do or could do, but only on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And he does it through faith in Jesus Christ. And for them to say, we gotta take on all these laws too, would have been a denial of the gospel. It would have been a denial of the fact that God in Christ, everything he demands from us, he delivers for us in Jesus. It would be saying faith in Jesus 
is not enough. Before you can follow Jesus, you must conform to our culture too. So think what's happening here. Remember that the Jewish culture in this church, that's the majority culture in the churches as a whole at this time. It's a majority culture. And if later church history is any indication, most of the Gentiles who had come to Christ were slaves. They were slaves. And so you have a minority from the margins of society that are being expected to conform to the majority culture. And this conflict threatens to split the church. So how are they going to decide what to do? How are they going to decide what decision to make at this point? You've got people on both sides that are saying different things. They made the decision and they decided to the same way that we make decisions here in this church today when we face difficult situations. They went to the people who had walked and talked with Jesus. You think, we don't go to the people who've walked and talked with Jesus. We don't go to people who have heard from Jesus and seen him. Yes, you do. You're doing it right now. It's called the New Testament. It's called the New Testament. That's what we go to because every text in our New Testament can be traced back to somebody who was getting information from eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. But they didn't have to go to a text. They went to people because these people were still alive at this time and their decision would be based not on what was convenient for them, but on the basis of what God had done in Christ. So let's pick it up in verse 7. In verse 7, it says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you're aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, a few years earlier, God had called Peter to go witness to a centurion, a Roman soldier named Cornelius. And he proclaimed to him the same message that he had been proclaiming to those who were Jewish. Trust in Jesus, turn from your old ways, and God will make you right with himself through Jesus Christ. And so in essence, what Simon Peter says here is, why add to the message now? Because all the way back then, Cornelius, when I, when I witnessed to him earlier, Cornelius trusted Jesus and God saved him and demonstrated that in a mighty way through his spirit. Why add to it now? But then he makes another point. He makes the point that none of us, speaking of the Jewish people, he says, none of us kept these, law perfectly, these laws perfectly either. None of us kept them perfectly. And we're reminded in this that the Old Testament laws were never meant to point anybody to or to lead anybody to salvation. The point of the Old Testament laws was to preserve a unique people through whom God would bring Jesus into the world and to show us how far we fall short of God's glory so that we would see our need for a Savior. And when Peter says this, it says the whole assembly became silent and listened. 
Notice that very carefully. Because much of the movement toward true and authentic and deep diversity comes in learning to listen to one another. And as they were silent and they heard Barnabas and Paul, and then James stands up. Now, this is not James, the brother of John that we see in the Gospels. See, that James was already martyred. This is another James. This is James, the son of Mary and Joseph, born after Jesus was born. That's who this is. Now, just as a sidelight, anybody got a big brother? What would it take you to convince you that your big brother is God in human flesh, okay? It takes something pretty amazing, like maybe a resurrection or something like that. This is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, who'd grown up with him, one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. And he cites and quotes the Old Testament prophets, and he points out through those that this diversity they're seeing was part of a plan that God had before time began. And then here's what James says. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. I want us to camp on and just think about for a moment that one clause there. We should not cause difficulties for those who turn to God. That's a great slogan. (laughs) We should not cause difficulties for those who turn to God. This is not saying that we shouldn't call those who turn to God to be changed. It's not saying that. What he's saying is to stop demanding conformity to human-made rules and cultures. Don't tie the gospel to human rules. That's what he's saying to them. We're reminded that we're not called to be conformed to any human culture, whether a nation or a political party or a religion. We are called to be conformed to Christ and to his kingdom and that alone. So James, in essence, says, brothers, drop your scalpels. They don't need to be circumcised to follow Jesus. And then all of a sudden, the text gets weird again, really weird. He lists then, instead, we should write to them to abstain from idols, sexual immorality, strangled, Things strangled and blood. Now, when we trust Jesus, we are called to a new way of life. But let's face it. Some of the things that he lists here are not exactly at the top of our naughty list, are they? I mean, I don't know about you. I just don't struggle with blood sipping or animal strangling. It's not one of the sins I really struggle with. I've never been in a time of temptation and given in and said, I'm just going to go strangle me some animals. I'm just not, I've not done that. I've never had somebody in my community group say to me, brothers, just pray for me. I just want to drink blood this week. That's not happened. Maybe it happens in your community group. It doesn't happen in mine. But in their context, what these have to do with is faithfulness to one God. Let me describe what could happen in many of the pagan temples of their day. Many of the pagan temples in their day, they viewed blood as something that by consuming it or using it, you could gain power and blessing from your God. And so they would strangle an animal to keep that blood in it. And then when they cut that animal open and the blood burst forth, the priest would reach in with a cup and take it and drink some of that blood of an animal. Now, this is not about whether you can have your steak rare or medium rare. 
thank you, Jesus. That's not what it's about, okay? The point is, leave behind the past practices that are connected to the pagan gods, completely leave those behind, completely put those behind you, and be faithful to one God who in Jesus Christ has provided the only sacrifice we ultimately need. That's what the point of the text is. Then we get on to to go to the next section of it, and we see that it says about sexual immorality at that point. It's about faithfulness in our relationships. When it speaks of sexual immorality here, it is speaking of any sexual relationship outside the marriage of a man and a woman. Remember that they lived with a radical double standard in the ancient world. Women, at least women that were free and not slaves, they were expected to be absolutely faithful to their husband in every single way. But men, sex was an appetite to be fulfilled and there were very few restrictions on how it was fulfilled. For example, Demosthenes, a few centuries before this, described their ethics, and he said it this way. We keep courtesans, that is, uh, prostitutes who are not slaves, we keep courtesans for pleasurable sex. We have slaves that we use day by day physically, and we have wives for the purpose of having legitimate children. Those are sexual ethics. Homosexual relationships, particularly with young boys, was encouraged and allowed in their culture, but here, look at this. It calls men and women to the same sexual ethic. Notice that it does. This is radical and unprecedented in the ancient world, that women and men call to the same sexual ethic, the same ethic of faithfulness. Not only that, it does something else. In their culture, if you were a slave master, part of what you were entitled to as a slave master was to use your slaves sexually in any way that you chose. But what happens in here, by the, the command here, by the, this is for all of God's people, that, that in Christ, you are to be faithful to one man or one woman sexually. This is declaring that the power of the slave master is not absolute. So in God's design, in the most intimate relationship, Christians are to live differently in faithfulness. One of the things we see in these, that when you came to circumcision, men were, were from, that was only for men. And so since it was only for men, they were supreme. They participated in God's blessings a little bit more than women did. But in this text, the things that are applied to these, the people of God are equally applicable for women and for men. There's a radical equalizing of women and men in what is commanded here. What do we do with this? How do we learn from this? How to look past our own cultures to developing new ways of looking at life and a deep diversity in the people of God? The three things I wanna leave you with this morning. Number one, value the conscience of your fellow believer more than you value your own freedom. Value the consciences of your fellow believers more than you value your own freedoms. Why does he specifically list blood and strangling right here? Well, it's partly because there was a temptation for the Gentiles to go back to their old lifestyle, and this was something that the Jewish Christians among them, they they viewed that as particularly part of that pagan culture that was highly offensive to them. And so he says, stay away from it. 
Make sure that you stay away from this. They valued the souls and the consciences of their fellow believers more than they valued their freedom in Christ. We need to live that way, brothers and sisters. There are films that you may watch, that you may have a brother or sister in Christ, that that's going to crush them spiritually to watch that. You may have places you go that you may think nothing about, but it will tear apart your brother or sister spiritually. There's some of you that for you, a glass of wine, it can be an act of worship and just enjoying that before God. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you may have a brother or sister in Christ that that one is going to turn into two and three and four and five, and they're going to wake up in a different state with a new tattoo. Don't do that to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be able to say, I can't do that because this is not good for me spiritually. And develop an attitude in our church where somebody does that. It's not seen as a sign of weakness or a sign that, that there's something wrong with them but it's a sign that they are taking care for their spiritual growth and you and I have a responsibility to do the same. Be sure you do that. Second thing, refuse to confuse conformity to any culture with conformity to Christ. See, what the Judean teachers were in essence saying is we will not recognize your commitment to Jesus until you conform to our culture. And James says, we should not make it difficult for those who turn to God. Now, you and I aren't typically tempted today to conform to the rules of the Pharisees. We're not. But there are other cultures that tempt us to conform to them. There are religious cultures that tempt us. Religious cultures where we're playing, placing different or higher demands on people than God himself puts on them. Maybe certain ways of dressing. You expect that when people come to church, they dress or they look a certain way. It may be that we stigmatize certain sins or certain struggles to the point that the people of God feel like, I can't admit I'm struggling with this because this has been stigmatized by the religious culture around me. Or somebody can't say that they struggle with same-sex attraction because we have stigmatized that as some sort of special category of sin that is different from all other struggles with sin. Or we stigmatize certain things that they may have done, people have done in their past, and they think, if I share this past sin that I committed, they will never look at me the same way again. It may be that there are certain struggles like depression that people can't say, I feel this because we give them stupid, trite answers to things that are deep darkness. We must recognize we cannot conform to a religious culture that places different standards on people than God himself places on them. There are political cultures. There are political cultures to which we are tempted to conform, in which we tie the Christian faith to particular party lines and particular politics. Let me just say, just bluntly, if your Jesus lines up perfectly with any political party, you don't have Jesus. You got a mascot and an idol. If your Jesus lines up with political parties, Jesus is no political mascot for us to use 
He is a king, and as his kingdom transforms us, I find that we are less and less likely to fit either on the liberal, the conservative, the left, or the right, because our ethics are shaped by a kingdom and not by a culture. Look at Jesus' followers. We see this in Jesus' followers. You've got a man who's named Simon, Simon the Zealot. Do you know what the Zealots were about? Violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. You got a guy named Matthew who was a tax collector. You know what tax collectors were about? Collaboration with the Roman Empire. Jesus calls them both. They're the far right and the far left of those accessible to him. Matthew leaves behind his tax booth. Simon leaves behind his his revolution. And both of them follow Jesus. What happens when our values are shaped not by a political culture, but by Christ and kingdom, we view people as created in God's image. We view them in such a way that we're broken, not just by abortion, but by a society in which millions of women feel abandoned and without access to adequate care, that they feel like this is my only option. That both of those are breaking us. That we are as outraged and as broken by unjust death outside the womb as inside, that we see it holistically, that we are the people and the place where immigrants and refugees are received and welcomed, that that's us, that's who we are, because, and not of politics, not of liberal and conservative, because of people created in the image of God. That's what we're talking about. We are not citizens of a culture, but of a kingdom. We don't belong to a culture. We're part of a kingdom. The last thing that I want you to remember is to listen to the voices from those who are on the margins. Listen to the voices of those who are ignored. I love that verse 12. They were silent and they listened. I'm going to challenge you with something. Who in this church do you think, I can't learn from them? Who? And if there are people in this church that you say, I can't learn from that type of person or that individual, you are living by cultural values instead of by kingdom values. Because the person that has less education than you may have a lot of wisdom you need to hear. The person whose politics are different from you There's somewhere they're coming from that you need to understand. If somebody has less financially than you, you need to hear from them to know how life looks from that side. Listen to the voices from the margins. There are some of you that have gotten so caught up in that men are to be leaders, and that's true, that you don't even listen to the voices of the women that God has placed around you. Stop it. Listen to the wisdom of the people around you. It may be the people who are from a different ethnicity or whose native language is different that you don't think, I can't learn from them. Those are culture values, not kingdom values. Deep diversity demands that we listen and learn from the margins. So what do we do? Let me give you a couple of practical ideas. The next time something controversial hits the news waves, Don't tune into your favorite station that always says what you want to hear or your favorite talk radio that always says what you like and what agrees with you. 
Stay off your Twitter and Facebook feed that that tailor everything to be an echo chamber of people who sound like you. Get off of that and find somebody in your church, this church, who looks at life differently than you do and say, how does this look from your perspective? How does this sound from your perspective? Learn, not from the pundits and the echo chambers of media, but learn from one another. There's some of you here who you've never walked a single block west of this particular location. You think you've done your duty by showing up right here. I've done my diversity duty for the week by showing up. Go that way. Talk to people. Love people. Listen to people. Spend some time hearing how life looks from other perspectives. Listen. What would sojourn look like in five years, 10 years, 20 years if we did that? What would it look like? It'd look like a stained glass window. You ever noticed stained glass window? Any one piece of that window is pretty dull and boring by itself. But you put all of them together and it's a mosaic of great beauty. No offense, y'all look by yourselves pretty dull and pretty boring. And I do too. We all do. But what makes a stained glass window beautiful is that all the different pieces are different and they are fitted together. And that's what will make us beautiful as well. We have different economics and different politics, but we seek to love one another and seek the flourishing of the community where God has placed us. We don't ignore or downplay other cultures. We rejoice in them as we hear from them. What I want to happen is for the world outside to look at this church, those that reject Christ, and say, I can't stand what they believe, but I wish I had their love. Is that how people look at our church and at us? Because you remember, we serve a Savior who was himself marginalized, who was set to the side, and he was cast out of the city all the way to death. But God did not leave him there. He raised him from the dead. And the same resurrection power that raised him from the dead is what raised your soul and my soul to life, that we might see the glories of God. And it gives us the power, not in ourselves, but through Christ, to be able to overcome the barriers that the world puts in place around us and between us. That's what it means to seek deep, diversity. We have a long way to go. Do not pretend we are even close, but we have a faithful God who will take us there.